<coughs> okay, let's go to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. This is actually the second to last one of these. Next week we will wrap up the book of Ephesians. I don't know how many sermons it is, 2030. We've got through the entire book. So we're almost there, hang on. I plan to bring a big box of chocolates next week which I'll pass around as our celebration for having gone through the entire book of Ephesians and then we'll be starting something new uh, which you will know about if you're on Facebook because we've had a little, um, little bit of a uh, kind of uh, preview there. So we're in this um, section, uh, the final section of the household table. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said to the church, be filled with the Spirit continually. That's what you should be like and this results in lifestyles of thanksgiving. Um, and then he goes on to say what will be the outworking within the, the household family. And he's talked about husbands and wives. We looked at that. He then last week he looked at children and parents. And now we're looking at slaves and masters. Now this is obviously, when we're talking about slavery, is a very sensitive issue. And I just want to kind of do a sort of a longish introduction to this before we get into the passage about the whole area of, kind of, of slavery, because it, it, it's, it's an unavoidable one. And it's a joy of when you preach through a book of the Bible, you've got to deal with everything. You can't avoid it because you don't like it, or you can't you know, just stick to your best bits. You have to go through and deal with everything. And Paul particularly addresses slaves here, slaves and their masters in this section, chapter 6, 5 to 9. And I just want <clears throat> to talk a little bit about slavery and the Bible and kind of our perception of it. One of the biggest problems is the Bible in and of itself doesn't ever directly call slavery a sin. It doesn't, there's nowhere it actually particularly says slavery is a sin. Um, however, in 1 Timothy uh, 1.10, in a list, Paul says, of, of particular sinners, it does actually mention slave traders as some of the worst of sinners, those who would traffic in other human beings. And when we think about slavery, we tend to think to a, in a kind of more a modern sense of the slave trade, where people are taken from their homes, treated like property, and basically forced to work, treated inhumanely, and, and that then is, is propagated. And just some sort of background on the slave trade, as we understand it in a more kind of modern tech context, last few hundred years, it was largely a racial thing, black-white, that was involved in the slave trade, and it was a lifetime of service. People were taken from their homes, they were removed, they were treated like property, like a piece of machinery, bought and sold, and forced uh, to work, and even uh, their children that were born through it were then brought up in slavery. So even the children might never have known anything different but just being slaves brought up in slavery. And what makes it even more difficult is some of the people who were involved in this advocating this were Christians, or at least professed to be. So you've got kind of Christians, people who are saying they are, involved in this um, evil and propagating it um, around um, the world. Under, in the US Constitution... Uh, 1787, um, it recognised when they formed the United States that there were certain rights given to men, to men and women because they were made in the image of God. They, certain um, unalienable rights that were given to man because they are made in the image of God. But within the Constitution, whites were given full representation, but blacks were only given three-fifths representation, 60%. So there was a recognition built in their constitution saying, actually, we are built in the image of God, we are made in the image of God, but actually whites, it's a full image, but for blacks it's actually only a percentage of that image, which is, to our kind of modern thinking, is absolutely abhorrent, but that's what they built in. But then in 1865, 
um, on the 13th Amendment, it actually eradicated slavery. That was only as near as 1865. In 1833, just before then, slavery was eradicated in the British Empire. The name that's often associated with that is William Wilberforce, um, as one one of the many campaigners to see the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. But the the irony is that even those events didn't eradicate the prejudice that came with it because you have, in the 1960s in the United States, you have what they call the civil rights movement. The main uh, kind of character involved in that is Martin Luther King, a Baptist minister who advocated a non-violent protest to um, the, um, the racism he saw in society. And through his kind of witness, which resulted in his murder, Um, it it changed much of the law-keeping and the fabric (coughs) of the United States, which we're still feeling the repercussions today. He's honoured so much that there was actually a public holiday in the United States, Martin Luther King Day, where they recognised that. But this whole issue of um, slavery and the slave trade actually split um, the nation of the United States, which caused a civil war, even split the church, which causes us as believers problems with, because you have believers on both sides, or at least people who profess to be believers on both sides of the kind of argument for and against. Now, about slavery, in biblical times, when Paul is writing and the, the period before, there are some very strong similarities with what we understand as a slave trade, but there are some big differences as well. The similarities is that, as in what we understand as the modern slave trade, and in biblical times, slaves could be beaten, branded, or killed. They were treated like property. They had no rights, and their only hope was a kind and benevolent master. That's what they needed. If they got a good master, it could go okay for them. If they got a poor, an evil, a vicious, vindictive master, it could go very, very badly for them. But some of the differences were that in um, biblical times, the slave trade was not primarily a racial issue. All races had slaves, all races were slaves. You could even have slaves of your own race that you would have. The masters would have slaves, but they were the same race. So it wasn't primarily a racial issue. Even I read that slaves actually owned slaves, which I'm not quite sure how that works, but the master would have a slave who then owned a slave but it was a different setup. In the Roman world, it was estimated as much as a third of the population were slaves at one point. So it's a massive uh, part of society. But this then also got into the church. So you could have a third of the church, say, as slaves. So we've got, so kind of you guys over here, we're the slaves, but all you guys are not slaves. But, uh, but that's how it might work in the church. And so you could think, well, we could have a third of the kids' leaders were slaves, a third of the worship band were slaves. A third of the leaders were slaves because they, 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 they qualified in the character qualifications given in the Bible, but yet they may still have been slaves, which caused kind of all sorts of tensions and issues uh, within the church. Another thing that was different was slavery was not necessarily a lifelong thing. It was estimated that most slaves were freed by the age of 30. So actually, as, almost as they grew... Um, the, by the age of 30, most people, uh, the slaves were free anyway, and often there were government decrees that basically just freed all the slaves um, in, in a particular area of time, saying actually they were all free um, uh, from their kind of what they were in. Also, the ways that people got into slavery were different. You could be um, a slave through war, you're in one army, they're in the other army, they won, you're a prisoner, 
You were then in slavery. You could be sold into slavery by your family. The, the obvious example of that in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, would be Joseph. <laughs> he had some great brothers, didn't he? They didn't like him. So they, 11 of them sold him into slavery. Caravan, he ends up down in Egypt. Read about that in the story of Genesis. Um, often slavery came out of infanticide. They didn't have abortion, but unwanted babies were literally just left to die. Thrown on the rubbish heap, left out just to exposure and die. People would find the children, raise them, but they would raise them as slaves in their, in their household. Um, so they would actually save the child, but actually that child would be um, a slave. You could actually be in slavery through debt. They didn't have a bankruptcy system as we have. Here you can get into large debt, declare yourself bankrupt, and it's all wiped. They didn't have that, actually. Some people sold themselves into slavery to pay off the debt that they owed. And they would work for kind of no wage, they spend more, and it would then pay off the debt that they owed um, uh, for, the, um, for what they had uh, accrued. Um, some people just sold themselves into slavery because they were so poor they couldn't afford to eat, they couldn't afford to feed their family. So they would sell themselves into slavery, so at least they had something to eat. Some slaves were treated brutally, um, evilly, but in the same sense, some, some slaves were actually treated extremely well and became kind of part of a family um, setup that depended very much on the masters. So there were um, some similarities, but there were some differences in there. So what does the Bible say about um, slavery? Although it doesn't directly say slavery is sin, slavery is wrong, it does have some big things to say about it. The first one to mention is silence is not an argument one way or the other. The fact that the Bible doesn't particularly say slavery is a sin, doesn't mean it's okay. Just because it's silent on that particular issue, doesn't say it's good, doesn't say it's bad, it's silent. Many of God's people were slaves. Joseph, we mentioned. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were slaves in Babylon. Um, They were taken from Jerusalem, they were in Babylon. The whole people of Israel were slaves at one time in the book of Exodus, numbering maybe as much as a million or more of the whole nation were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And God himself uh, deals harshly with those people. Take Pharaoh and Egypt, for instance. Let my people go. No. Keeps repeating, keeps repeating. What happens to the nation of Egypt? It suffers greatly um, for enslaving God's people. The Bible doesn't argue against it directly, but it argues against slavery in principle. Matthew 22 Love um, your neighbour. It doesn't say own your neighbour. It says love your neighbour. Matthew 7, it says treat others as you would like to be treated. Would you like to be dragged from your home in the middle of the night, shipped off to another place, branded, beaten and told to work for the rest of your life? No. So then don't treat others like that. So there is a principle there. We are told to be imitators of God. In Ephesians, actually, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, Jesus. Did Jesus own slaves? No. Did he force anyone to work for him? No. In fact, what did Jesus do in John 13? He actually, he actually took the job of the slave, the lowest, and washed his disciples' feet. And so actually, if we're to be imitators of God, there is a, a strong, we're to be servants, actually, and not actually be the ones who lord it over others. Galatians 3.28, it says that there is um, neither male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He's actually saying that 
um, before God, there is no preferential treason based on class, race or gender. No one gets a bump up or a bump down before God. We are equal, in, we are equal before God in two ways. One, we bear the image of God and two, we are all sinners. So that's our equality before God. We all share that in common. We bear his image and we are all equally evil and wicked and need a saviour. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if uh, you are a Christian and you are a slave, you should try and gain your freedom. But he also says if you are free, you should not become a slave, you should not sell yourself into slavery because it can actually create a conflict between an earthly master and your ultimate heavenly master who is God. And so the Bible, although may not actually directly say about slavery, it is very strongly against it if you take the principles um, in that. As we come to the passage which we need to look at now, um, we do not have slavery <coughs> in this nation in an obvious sense. Um, we don't earn slaves. Uh, we are not slaves. So how do we apply it to us in this culture here and now, for us sitting here in this room? How are we going to deal with this? Well, the best way to kind of bring it up to date for us is rather than thinking of slave and master, we have to think of employee, employer. Manager, subordinate, um, the, the one who owns the company, the one who works for the company. If we change the word slave to employee, it can read differently to us, but it's still very relevant um, to us today to take what Paul is saying and apply it to our lives. So let's just read um, the passage to us. Okay, start at verse 5, 6 verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, I just want to look at uh, five things that we can, no, four things, sorry, that we can apply um, to our lives um, in this one. Number one, Jesus is your boss. Jesus is your boss. Look at that first bit. It says at the end of verse five, as you would Christ. When it comes to work, we're talking about work, we want to, it's, it's the widest possible meaning. There are those of you who get paid to work, there will be those of you who don't get paid to work, like if you're a full-time parent. Um, ask any parent who spends most of their time with small children, raising children, is that work? If you dare to say it's not work, make sure you step, stay well back or have some kind of defensive shield around you because the response you get might be um, quite extreme. Some of you might be students, and actually you pay to work, which is almost the other way around from receiving pay to work. Students have to pay money to work, um, pay for their tuition and the like. You might be a volunteer, um, and you don't actually receive any pay, but you still work and you give yourself to something. So work in the broadest sense. So whatever you're doing, it says Jesus is your boss. Whoever is in authority over you, you need to honour and respect them, because behind them, above them, is actually Jesus, and he is um, your boss. We are actually called to work. In Ephesians 2, which we've looked at, uh, God says that there is good work for you to do. He says, actually, we've been saved by grace 
through faith. Why? Because there's actually going to be work for you to do. There's things I want you to be doing. Good work, good service. Good service. So as Christians, we should be good, hard-working people in whatever God has called us to, however wide um, that definition is. You should be doing it. Christians should actually be the best workers there are. They should have respect and integrity and honesty and diligence and character in whatever they're doing they should be working at it in such a way that they are excelling in it because they are so kind of dedicated to the work, knowing that above them there is Christ as the one who is watching them. And the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what is the reputation you have at work? What is the reputation we have as a church in all our kind of areas um, that we work? Are we looked at well? Are there businesses in this town and city crying out, saying, we need more Christians working here, because when they come here, they do such a good job, it benefits the company. The staff morale goes up, um, the, kind of, the, the relationships between staff is good, the customers are pleased with the service that is provided, and they're dealt with honestly. Um, as a result, revenues go up, our reputation increases, which means our business increases. Are there, kind of, are there adverts in the paper that say, you must be qualified and we'd love you to be a Christian because we know we're going to get a good, good worker come and join the company as a result. And we are to approach work like that because Jesus is our boss. It says there that, that there should be fear and trembling. That phrase is used in the Bible when people approach the living God. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was terrified and he fell on his face. When John in Revelation saw the risen Lord, he fell on his face with fear and trembling because he saw the glory of God. And us as workers, in whatever that field is, we are to approach it with a boss that we have fear and trembling. And that's the boss is Christ, because he is above everything. He is the one that we look to. He is our ultimate authority. And you might say, I have a terrible earthly boss. You know, he's lazy, he's rude, he's demanding. I submit to you, it's no worse than a slave owner. So in the kind of the grand scheme of things. But whoever that is, behind that, we have a boss who is Christ. So whatever job we do, however we work, we're working for Jesus. He's the one who's called us, he's the one who's asked us. So as Christians, we should work hard, we should work honest, we should work well in whatever um, we're trying to do. I've had um, kind of experiences this, of this over the years. I mean, you might look at me now as, as kind of the leader of the church and someone who's actually um, paid to do this job is actually thinking, I, I now work for Jesus. Because I work for a church, it's really easy actually to say my boss is Jesus because I'm in this. But actually, throughout my kind of um, career working, I've always been working for Jesus. That's the reality. That's the ultimate reality um, behind it. And working with Jesus as your boss creates tension. One of my first jobs was um, I worked at Stansted Airport when I was at university. I, I worked for the summer. My dad worked there as one of them. Um, sort of engineers. He'd worked in, uh, for the airlines all his life. And he got me and my brother a job at um, the airport cleaning um, the hangar. And hangars, they're not the 
you know, most cleanest things and it's a mucky job. But we were there and we were the lowest of the low. We were the bottom rung of the food chain in the hangar. Everyone in the hangar had to wear overalls and they were the nice company overalls and the, the, the collars of the overalls uh, denoted their seniority. So there's different colour collars, but everyone had the same blue. Me and my brother had disposable white overalls that we had to go and pick up every day. So we stood out on the hangar floor so obviously that we were the temps bottom of the food chain. Um, and this whole thing, at the time, my brother and I had really had been filled with the spirit and we'd kind of come into this Christian life we wanted to live. And we'd been thrust into this environment that was particularly ungodly if you've got hundreds of men just working together. It's not the most kind of godly environment. And um, we were given, put in charge, this guy, all these guys were in charge of the cleaners and we were told to clean this. We had to actually clean the planes physically. One of them was a 747. If you know a 747, they're pretty big. And you had to clean the outside of this 747. Um, and one of the jobs we had to do was uh, to clean the vertical uh, stabiliser, the tail at the back. And they have a tail gantry that goes around the back. And the, the vertical stabiliser on, on the 747 is massive. It's high, several storeys high. And so we had to climb up and we had to actually physically clean with our hands the whole tail section of this plane. But what we did was when we got up the gantry to the top, no one could see you. All the hangar floor, you were totally hidden view because you have to go up these steps that kind of went back and back. So when you're right at the top and you have to work your way down, no one could see you. And we went up with a guy who was, um, who was kind of in charge of the two of us. And we got to the top and he said, just sit yourself down, guys. And we're like, so we did, you know, do it at the top. You sat there. You know, and the minutes started to roll past. And we're like, are we just going to sit here? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, they can't see us. We'll take a break. And then, the, and then and you start to get a bit uncomfortable because it, you know, 10 minutes rolled into 20 minutes and then roll into 30 minutes. And then suddenly the call comes up, boss is coming, so their boss is coming. Look, busy. <laughs> so we're all doing this, and then the boss comes up, and here's the worst bit, he says, oh, you're doing a good job, lads. This is coming up really clean. He says, we're doing nothing. I'm doing absolutely nothing, so I'm being told. Which the discomfort in us grew, because actually, behind it, you think, Jesus is the boss here watching us, and we're, we're taking the mickey out of the company here. And then we got put on with another guy, and this was a hysterical one. His name was Swanee. Okay, and we thought that was his name. You know, he's like his surname was Swan, and they called him Swanee, nickname. We found out later, they called him Swanee because he swanned around doing nothing. And he was the guy we were working for, and he would always say, don't work too hard, guys, don't work too hard. Don't, 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 don't kill yourself, just take it nice and easy. And he would give us these menial jobs, like, just sweep this area, so an area about the size of this, just sweep it out, I'll come back in a couple of hours. And we're like... Seriously, there's just not enough to do. But actually, and we felt that sense of actually, we're not, I'm taking money for this. We're being paid for this. But actually, there's no encouragement to do um, a good job. And as I moved through into you know, other lines of work, actually, as I was a school teacher, um, I realised actually behind it, it taught me a lesson of thinking, whatever I'm doing, I serve a head teacher when I'm a school teacher. They're, they're in charge of the school. They're the one I answer to. They're my, my boss. But behind that, I've got a boss of Christ who I'm looking at, who I want to do a good job for, because that's ultimately who I'm working for. And whatever line of work you do, whatever business is, and whoever your ultimate kind of authority is within an earthly sense, whoever you answer to, behind that, Jesus is our boss, and he's the one that we should be answering. He's the one we should be looking at. And when we approach work, we approach it with that fear and trembling that actually he's the one who ultimately we will give account to for how we work um, in life. Okay, the next one. Jesus is watching you. Verse 6. It says, it says okay, if you work well uh, with a sincere heart, 
as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, so not by way of just doing things so people can see you as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. The bottom line is, whatever we do, Jesus is watching. Now here's the question to you. Do you work better when you are supervised or unsupervised? Ooh, that's a tough one, isn't it? No one wants to answer that question. Does your productivity decline when no one's watching? As a Christian, here's a question, should you need supervision to do your job? No, you, really, you shouldn't, should you? We should, we should just be able to do it. It shouldn't be a case of when my boss is standing over me, then I work, and when he or she leaves me, then I, you know, I, I'm kind of free to do whatever I want. The bottom line is, your boss may not be watching, but Jesus is, and he sees, he sees it all. Uh, when we are unsupervised, it can be the most dangerous time in workplaces, because no one's watching, so checking Facebook suddenly becomes a legitimate activity. I just check my status, update it, check my Twitter feed, surf the net... Christmas is approaching, maybe I just order that online shop to come to the house, you know, get a few Christmas presents sorted out, making personal phone calls on company time, no one will know, no one's here uh, watching. Those of you who have billable hours as part of your work, I have to account them, the client's not going to know exactly where I spent my time, what I'm billing you, if I overbill you a little bit, they're never going to know, so you have to have integrity um, in there, even just, in essence, you're stealing time from your company. And then there's also the essence of actually, are you taking things from your company that you shouldn't have? You know, bits of stationery, that's always the worst one, isn't it? Stationery goes, post-it notes, pens, paper, you know, bits and pieces, they all find um, their way to us. Um, but for us, as Christians, it's not, Christianity is not um, a commitment you made, it's a lifestyle you lead. It's something that you're doing all the time. We put it in our purpose statement. You know, real life is all about having a relationship with Jesus, following his model. It's actually it's something we do on a regular basis. It's something we're doing. And so, for us as Christians, we need to be working well, regardless of who's watching, knowing Jesus is watching us all the time, everything we say <coughs> and do. This verse um, kind of was driven home to me when I got one of my, another one of my kind of university jobs was I was, a, I was a house cleaner. I went back home and I worked for a lady in her cleaning company. And there's some houses you'd go to that looked like a bomb hit. I mean, really, a bomb hit. And so to clean it was obvious. You had to clean it because when they came back, um, they would know if you had been there because it was so messy. So you had to actually wipe everything down uh, and get it all sorted. But there was one house we went to every week and I was dropped off there for a couple of hours and the house was immaculate. I mean, it was, it's like they cleaned for me coming. Do you know what I mean? Houses like that, they cleaned for me coming. So I would go there, and I kept saying to the, um, the boss, saying, look, it's, it's clean. The house is... I go there, and it, it, it's clean. And you're going to leave me for two hours and come back. Well, she went and did another job and came back and picked me up. And she said, you know, you've got to clean the house. That's what the client's paying us for. They want you to do that. So I'd go in and find the hoover, and I'd have my bunch of you know, cleaning stuff. And I suddenly was in this dilemma... I could literally sit there for two hours and or one hour and fifty minutes. For the last ten minutes, go around and spray polish everywhere. You spray polish everywhere, then it it smells like something's happened. 
maybe move a few things. If you're really savvy, you move a few things because it looked like you hoovered around it. So if you move it so the line's not on the carpet's chains, so it makes it look like you moved it. Um, and I can just sit there and put the telly on. Or, you know, do something else. Um, and you think, but no, but Jesus is watching, actually. I need to clean this house, even though, you know, on the surface, it doesn't look like it, it's needed. And that's not something that's changed. That was a, a job I did um, a while back. I now have a job where I, I work for the church, and much of my time is unsupervised. Who knows what I get up to? I'm actually really, I'm accountable to people, but on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, I'm the only person on council that is going to have it and my own integrity. I often work at Ben and Charlotte's house. They've lived in one of their rooms where I can go, get out of the chaos that is my house, have a bit of quiet space, and do some of my work, do my sermon prep, emails, other bits and pieces. But if you've ever been to Ben and Charlotte's house, it's a nice house. And they have a really nice sofa that's very, very comfortable. And their telly is quite big. Um, and they have some of the nice channels, and, and, and they have a nice um, DVD collection as well. And if you've ever been into their kitchen, we've known them for a number of years, and they always have in their kitchen, whatever they live, a sweet cupboard. No joke, it's a cupboard full of wonderful treats and all the things that are not good for you. And so when I go to work at Ben and Charlotte's, I have right at my fingertips, within, I can see them from where I sit in, Places where I could just sit and do things that aren't work. We're also in the American football season, which is my favourite sport in the whole wide world. And the TV is there, and I can catch up on whatever I want, whatever I want, and no one will know. But the only reality is that Jesus is watching. He's the one we're ultimately working for. He's the boss. And so he is the one seeing everything we do. Everything we do, when we are supervised by our boss close or when we're, they are away and we are unsupervised and we are just having to get on with things on our own initiative, Jesus is the one who's watching. Okay, number three, Jesus will reward. It says, we start in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. The point he's making there is Jesus will reward what you do. Now, just to clarify, we are not saved by works. We are saved by Jesus' work alone. He did the work so that we can be saved. We can become Christians. It was all his work. However, we are to live a life of works and service, flowing out of that. In our purpose statement of the church, it's written over there, it says, we believe real life is having a relationship with Jesus, number one. Our relationship with Jesus, born out of his grace. We follow his model, and then we, we change our world with him. So we're actually, we're doing something, we're proactive, but the, the beginning of it is our relationship with him. He saved us by his death on the cross, and so we can have a relationship, but out of that flows a work of service. Um, James puts it as, faith without works is dead. And the point is, you have faith in Christ, and it should manifest itself somehow in life. And that's what we're to do. But Jesus taught that actually we're going to be judged according to our works, according to what we've done. He, he told parables about it, the parable of the talents. Actually, you may have been given something, something you're good at, responsibility in life, and, and you, ha- you have an obligation with that responsibility to do something with it. You might think you're, it's small or it's big, 
But either way, you've got to do something with it and you will be rewarded according to that. So whatever you've got in your life, the job you have, the people you're responsible um, for, um, whether that be employees or children or whatever, Jesus is going to reward you according to how well you do with it, what you do with it. And we are to work at it. Um, it says goodwill, goodwill um, uh, in, in the verse there, which is a zeal, an eagerness, a wholeheartedness, and we are to work hard. It says anyone or each there. It talks about it's, it's a personal thing. What each one does, I will reward, which means you can't bank on anyone else's. If, if you know, your colleague works super hard, you might get a bit of reflected glory um, now, but actually before Christ you'll give account for what you have done and you alone. And there is a day coming where um, we will receive our bonuses, our heavenly bonuses. You might work on earth and your boss might be mean and surly and they do not recognise your contribution they do not recognise what you give to the company, you are not paid enough, you do not get your bonuses, you are not treated well, you are passed over for promotion because someone's a bit more slimy than you and you kind of get missed out and you're like, I don't want to play that game and then suddenly they get promoted and you're left down, but there is a day coming when you will receive your reward and that reward will last forever and we are to Live a life remembering Jesus is the boss, he's watching, and he will reward what we do. Even in the face of it being you know, <clears throat> a difficult time now in what we're, in we're working. And this was most vividly illustrated to me when I was at university. I did a, a temping job and I worked for the Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, and I was, it was one of those kind of summer jobs. Um, and I had my last summer before I left university and went and took a year out. Um, and I wanted to earn a bit there. So I had like six, eight weeks of summer just after I'd graduated. And I got this job at a temp agency. And it was quite a good one, but it was a short job. It was only for a few weeks, but it paid well by the hour. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll have that because I'm getting paid well. And then when the few weeks were over, I'll have to go and find something different. But I was with an agency. I thought, okay, that'd be all right. And the job was mind-numbing. That's why they paid you a bit more than everything else. It was a painfully mind-numbing data entry job. It was for the rail track script dividends. And you got literally tens of thousands of these letters came in that you had to open up and you had to enter the data of the person and to, you know, kind of work out whether they wanted to be involved or not. And it was just, you know, hour after hour after hour of this. And it was just, you wanted to bang your head against the keyboard. Okay, so the only way you could kind of work this was you had a bit of banter with some of the other temps who were doing it. There was sort of a group of us there and they'd got a lot of us in to try and break the back of this. Um, but the, and we had a lady who I called Penny. She, she was our supervisor. She set us all to work, told us what to do, and then just kind of monitored it. But because she had other other jobs, other responsibilities, she was in and out a lot, in and out of the room, um, watching us. One day she was on a course all day um, for some software she had to learn how to use. So she was around, but not much. And when she wasn't around, obviously, you know, productivity started to decline, and people started. Um, to take the Mickey, and at that point, I was, I was in, I kind of, I'd gone through some of these previous experiences, and I thought, I want to work harder. This is good money. I want to work well. I want to work hard. So I just tried to beaver away as much as I could and get as much done as I could um, within the time available. And I worked an extra couple of hours at each end of the day to try and get it done. Plus, I got paid for it, which was nice. Um, but when the three weeks were up, and they were about, they were going to basically let us all go. 
People were moaning because actually it was, it was a bit more paid an hour than some of the other jobs. I mean, back then it was probably only, what, 5 50 an hour or something. Which for us as students, that's like mega bucks. You just think, wow, I'm just now one of the most best paid people in the planet. But if you went and got other jobs, they'd be, they'd be paying you less. So you kind of, this was a good job. But when it came to the end of that time, nearly everyone was let go except for me. And I was, and I, you know, they all kind of let go and go back to the agency and find something else. And I was kept on. And I was like, why have I been kept on? He said, you've been kept on because you work hard and you're not mucking around and, and you're getting on with the job that you've been given. And so what they did was they found me other things to do for the rest of the summer um, to keep this thing ticking over because they didn't need many people. And so I stayed on this high rate of pay, high for me anyway, throughout the whole time of summer, which really set me up well going into a year out, which was a voluntary year out um, where I wasn't going to get paid either. And the staggering thing was when I finally had to give them my notice and say, I've got to leave because I've got to go back home. The rent on my place at university is up. I've got to go back home because I'm going to go and start this year out somewhere else. This lady, Penny, she took me to meet her bosses at RBS. We're talking about senior management. She took me up to the, the other floor where the proper people work. I got to go up in the lift to the other floor and she took me round, all her bosses, and they all shook my hand and said, thank you for the work I've done. I was up by the hour paid temp and I wasn't paid much comparative to them and what they're doing, but she took me round and said, this is true, I've told you about. And I had guys standing up, shaking my hand, saying, thank you for the work you've done for us this summer. And I was just, you know, I was the, the lowest of the low in the corporate structure. But actually, my, my work had been recognised by my earthly masters in that sense. And for us as Christians, we're to work like that, knowing Jesus is the one who's watching. And even if we receive no reward here, even if our, our contribution is never recognised in that way, ultimately, before God, we're going to get recognised one day. And that, that bonus be better than anything you can get here because it's going to last um, forever. Last one. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example. He now comes on to talk about masters. Who is in here is in authority? You might be a parent in authority over children. You might be in authority in your work. You might have people who, who, who report to you. You might be a line manager, a director. You might have people, you might have the power to hire and fire people under you. You're in that position and how you treat them is part of your faith, is an expression of your faith. How you treat those under you, those in your care, those you have authority over, is an expression of your faith in Christ. And the question is, are you treating them the way Jesus would treat them? There are those, there's those bands you can get, which say, work, work, jerk, dirt, so on primary school, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Which is not a bad question. But actually, are you treating those individuals the way that Jesus would treat them? Because he says specifically, stop threatening them. Don't treat them through threats and intimidation and bullying. But actually, you treat them through grace and gentleness and humility and you motivate them that way. The way Jesus did. I didn't notice Jesus, if you read the Gospels, in threatening his disciples bullying them, trying to make them do something. He lived by an example um, that they followed him and they gladly and willingly served him. Because the example of Jesus is an interesting one because he is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 
He is the one who was high and lifted up, exalted on the throne, ruler and reigning in majesty over everything, created all things. Everything was created through him and he holds it all together. But he's also the humble servant who came and washed his disciples' feet. He went from majesty to almost nothing. He worked a manual job for most of his life. We focus on the kind of the last, the back end of his life, three and a half years, public ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection ascension, very important. But the front of the end of his life, which was ten times as long, he worked as a, in essence, a manual labourer, a carpenter. You know, built stuff with his hands. Um, and so he is um, an example of what it would be to be in authority, but also what it would be in, in a subordinate role. And so if you are in authority here in your workplace, in your position, uh, you're the boss, you're the parent in this situation, are you following the model of Jesus on how you, how you treat those who are under your care, those who follow you, those you are serving um, because Paul makes the point that there's no favouritism before God. There's no preferential teaching. You could be the CEO of one of the largest companies, the most wealthiest companies in the world, and think you have many rights and privileges in this sort of day and age from your position, but actually before God, it means nothing. There's no favouritism. You could be in that same company, the cleaner, who has the most menial task, but actually, before God, he, prefer, he, he, he rejoices in what you do because you work hard and you work well in it rather than um, the way you are the boss and you treat people, your employees, poorly. There is no favoritism to God. The position means nothing to him. It's his attitude of heart. And there's no special treatment before God. And so, those who are in authority, you actually have a, a greater responsibility to live up to. And you, are you living it in the way Jesus would have you do it? Now, the grim reality to motivate people through grace and love is so much harder than to motivate people through threats and bullying. I've been a school teacher. It's easy to motivate the children through threats, detention, lines, you're not going to go out and do this, you're not going to have this, you're going to miss your golden time. All those kind of things, it's very easy. And if you're an employer, there's always the ultimate one, is you will be fired if you don't do what I say. You won't get the promotion. You won't. But actually trying to motivate through grace is so much more difficult. To motivate through an example, to get alongside them and encourage them in what they're doing, to help them see what they're doing in part of the bigger picture and how it fits in. Through your own personal example, can motivate people to work hard because you're working hard and you're putting the time in and not mucking around in what you're doing helps build um, people up. I found that actually in being past- in pastoral ministry in churches, I have to learn this lesson because I can't fire any of you. <laughs> you're all here by choice anyway. You're volunteers. I, 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 there's been times in pastoral ministry I think, can we just can we fire someone? I'm really cross. They're not doing what I asking. It's like, no, you can't. Because one, they don't work for you. That's not how Jesus would do it. And this is not a very good example. But you find that in a turmoil. And we all go through it. But actually we're to follow the example of Christ. Humble servant. And when we're in authority, we're still serving the people. We're still motivating by grace. We're still trying to lead them um, the best way we can. Coming along beside them. So my challenge to you, to you if you are in authority over anybody, 
um, actually, how are you leading them? What does it show them of Jesus in your life? If you're caring for anyone under you, what does that show um, of Jesus? Okay, let me just sum up, conclude. The conclusion is, um, talking about this whole area of slavery and masters, the reality is, we are all slaves. The Bible says, Romans 6, we are all slaves to sin. All of us. If you don't believe that, try being perfect for a week. Don't sin at all. In anything. If you do that, then okay, fine, maybe you're not a slave to sin. But if you fail, you're a slave to sin. But Jesus dealt with that on the cross. He dealt with that on the cross. The King of Kings became the humble servant, died in our place for our sins, took the punishment of that. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness. We are actually slaves to Christ. So the big idea overall of that actually is you are a slave. The question is, what are you a slave to? Sin and death or Jesus and life? That's it. You can either be a slave to sin and death or Jesus and life. And if you're not a Christian here today, I ask you to make the choice become a slave to Jesus. He is a way better boss than his slavery leads to life and to freedom. But that's what we are. We are all saved, so we are all called to work hard, give um, ourselves the best. And my challenge for you guys this week is as you approach your work, whatever it is, it's going to hit you um, tomorrow morning for most people. Some of you might be this afternoon, you'll go back and do something um, work actually is how are you doing that before Jesus? He's your boss. He's watching. He will reward you for what you do, even if no one else sees. Um, and he's also our example and our strength and the one we've looked to. How do I go through this? How do I live through this particularly difficult time at work when my boss is just mean and horrible? How do I have grace to persevere through difficult times? Jesus is the example because he perseveres through more than we can ever persevere through what he suffered uh, in our place for that. So I'm just going to finish. I'm going to pray um, and then we'll move on to the next part of our our meeting. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you've saved us. Lord God, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness and we are free in you. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that you are the best master we could ever have. Lord God, that you're such a good master that you you serve us. Lord, you died in our place for our sins. Uh, Lord, that we might know you, uh, be free. Um, before you, Lord God. And I ask you, God, in the day-to-day practicalness of life, in our work, whether it be paid employment, parenting children, student, a volunteer, whatever, God, I ask you to give us grace to do that well. Grace to do it well, to work hard when no one's looking. To work well, to be good, honest, hard workers who are diligent and faithful in what um, we do. If we are in authority, thank you for that privilege and honour, Lord God, but help us lead as you would lead, um, to be um, responsible as you would be responsible, to care for our employees, those under us, as you would do that, uh, Lord Jesus. And God, ultimately, we want to become more and more like you in all that we say and do. And God's people said, Amen.